This morning we're going to be reading from John chapter 7, verses 1 through 13, which must have been one of the lowest points in Jesus' earthly ministry. And so in light of that, I invite you to all to hear God's word. Now after this, Jesus went around in Galilee. He did not want to go about in Judah because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. But when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, Leave Galilee and go to Judah, so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. Therefore, Jesus told them, my time is not yet here. For you, any time will do. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me. Because I testify that its works are evil. You go to the festival. I am not going to this festival because my time has not yet fully come. After he had said this, he did stay in Galilee. He stayed in Galilee. However, after his brother had left for the festival, he went also, not publicly, but in secret. Now at the festival, the Jewish leaders were watching for Jesus and asking, where is he? Among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him. Some said, he's a good man. Others replied, no, no, he deceives the people. But no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the leaders. This is the word of God. You may be seated. I don't know about you, but uh, there are times when discouragement comes in my life and it can come like a, 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 a hammer on a piece of china. When we were in school, when I was taking uh, Hebrew as a language, we had a, a professor named Dr. Gary Pratico. G Gary, was, Gary was such a gentle man, but um, we, we knew that you, he was serious about us learning the Hebrew language because he was never someone who was going to let someone slip by. And so the way class operated was that you would, you would study, you'd study your heart out, and then you'd go to class, and he would ask you to pronounce the Hebrew or give the declension of it or something like that. And no one, <laughs> y'all, Hebrew is like Chinese, and, and it's, it's not like English. It's not written from right, uh, left to right. It's written from right to left, okay? Now, for an American, that's hard enough. But then the, the, the icons of the letters themselves are like someone put a bunch of chickens in the middle of a chicken pen and let them walk around. They're just scratches everywhere. And you read this and you think, God is so good to give us a Bible because it's been printed in so many languages. But the original language of the Old Testament is Hebrew. The original language of the New Testament is Greek. Well, as you come to class, we would be tense wanting to get the right answer. And as we sat there and he would call upon you, you were put on the spot. It was like those old E.F. Hutton commercials, you know. Well, E.F. Hutton says, and everybody in the restaurant turns. Everybody would turn to you when Gary would call on you. And you would go, and you would try to give the right answer. And Gary's response was always classic. It was, 
Uh, no, Robert, that's not quite right. And we nicknamed him the Velvet Hammer. That's who Gary Pratico was. You know who what a Velvet Hammer is? A Velvet Hammer is a hammer that's been covered in velvet, so when the blows come, it really hurts, but it wasn't as painful as it or crushing as it could have been. Well, I don't know about you, but the times I'm living in these days, I find very discouraging. I find it very discouraging because we're living in a time where belief in Christ is becoming not the norm, it's becoming the minority of our country. It's becoming the minority of our country. And so as a, as a Presbyterian in the South, I am coming from a culture where everyone believed in Christ and came to church to now we have a no, whole other generation of people who say, why in the world do you need Jesus? What's the big deal about Christ? And the thing that is so discouraging is the church is not ready. We're not ready to give a defense of our faith. Because if anyone came to you and asked you, why do you believe in Christ? Many of you, and honestly, would, you would join me in saying, I'm not sure I could give an adequate defense of what we believe. Now, if you're in that position, you need to realize God is waking you up. And I believe that is what God is doing in the church today. I believe he is waking up believers, rousing them to remember who the Lord is. That he is the Lord of heaven and earth. The one who came in, his, in the son Jesus and bore our sins upon the tree so that we may know the one true God and we may know him fully, completely, and be satisfied with the work of what Christ has done in the cross. Well, why is this so important for us? Because the problems we're facing in our day are the, fa are the fact that we are sinners. Not just those people outside of our doors. We all are sinners and fallen short of God's glory. All of us do not live consistently what we believe in our own hearts to be right, much less what the scriptures teach. And so the question then becomes, how then do we live and how then do we go forward in professing a faith? And that's where the key of this whole passage comes from. When you look at this passage, there are three things that I want to point out to you this morning very quickly. And by the way, uh, this may be the shortest sermon on record. I didn't hear an amen. The skepticism and uncertainty that Jesus faced involved three things that are really quite powerful. The first is that he was, he was someone who had come into the world, and in coming into the world, there were three things that caused people to respond in certain ways. First, he noticed in passage that he had an occasion to come, and he had an occasion to be public in his ministry. I don't know anyone who wants to be rich and famous that doesn't do things to put their name out there. I mean, if you're going to run for an office, you don't hide behind a bush. If you want to be senator of North Carolina, you don't campaign in Florida. You get busy and you get on the road so people know your name and they recognize what you stand for. And so you would think that because Jesus had come to be the savior of the world, that he would be someone who would want to be publicly known and followed by as many people as he could get behind him. But it tells us in this passage, and if you notice in John chapter 7, verse 1, if you have your Bibles open, you'll notice that it says that after this, after what? Well, go back to chapter 6, and you'll find that we've covered already that Jesus said, I'm the life. 
that if you want to live and know God, you must come through me. And I have come into the world to give you that knowledge. But you must come to me, Jesus said. You can't go to the temple. You can't go to the scriptures. You must come to me because the scriptures testify of who I am. And the temple is the worship of the God who you see before you. Because God is incarnate. Most amazing thing is the occasion is found in verse seven or verse one. It says Jesus was around Galilee. Jesus, Galilee was in the northern region. Judah was in the southern region. It's kind of like uh, the north and the south in America. It would be like being in the difference between being in New York and being in Atlanta. But Atlanta would be the place that you would go as a Jew to worship God. And so Jerusalem was the place that people would gather in the temple to worship God. But Jesus was far from the temple. He was on the far reaches of the north. He was around the Sea of Galilee. A very rich and prosperous area, but a place that wasn't just Jewish. It was Gentile as well. He would go there to get away from those in the south because they persecuted and killed him. In fact, every time he did a miracle, whether it was feed the 5,000s, as we've seen in earlier chapters, or other places where he healed someone who was a paralytic, Jesus, you would think, would have been worshipped. People would fall down before him and say, you're, you're, you're a man of God. But all those miracles did was cause people to hate him. Because the religious leaders of that day saw that basically he was doing these good works, but he was claiming to be God, and they didn't like it. They wanted to kill him. Interestingly enough, that's exactly what the scriptures tell us would happen when the Messiah would come. You turn to Isaiah 53, you will see that Jesus is prophesied there as a man who would be hated. We would not want to look upon him. He would be scourged and broken for us in our transgressions. But the occasion is important that we understand that not only was Jesus in Galilee, the time had arrived for one of the great holy festivals of the land. There were only three of them. There were only three festivals that the Jews really paid attention to and gave great effort to. It's kind of like Thanksgiving for us in the sense that you don't see anybody not preparing for Thanksgiving in America. In that day, the, the most exciting time, one of the high and holy that, excuse me, festivals of the Jewish people was called the Feast of Tabernacles or the feast that basically commemorated the time when God rescued the Jews from slavery in Egypt and they lived in temporary homes. It's amazing to think about this, but those, those particular those particular times were powerful in that they were a feast where God would remind them of how he had worked in the past. But every reminder of the past would be also a reminder that God would promise to come in the one Messiah who would complete what he had started back in the beginning. And so when you and I begin to work through this and you look at verse chapter 7, verse 1, the Feast of Tabernacles was a high and holy feast. Over the next two Sundays in dealing with all of chapter 7 and chapter 8, if we don't have an understanding of what went on in the Feast of Tabernacles, we won't understand anything Jesus teaches here. For instance, later in chapter 7, Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. Have you heard that before? 
Well, when he says that, he says it in the context of this feast that's going on. It lasted for eight days. The first was a Sabbath day where they would prepare and they would make a, a temporary dwelling, uh, a tent, or, or maybe out of bushes. They would build this, this temporary resting place outside of their home. It was kind of like camping. Have you all ever been camping? Jim and Sandra used to go camping. Their kids loved it. Uh, at their anniversary, uh, as they had memories of their family life, those kids, all they talked about was camping. Camping this, camping that. I just thought, man, I missed it. I should have been part of the Smith family. This, is, this was fun. It was fun for the Jews. They would set up these temporary dwelling places and they would camp out and they would remember how God delivered them from the slavery of Egypt. And that God promised that he would send a savior into the world. And so during that time of the feast, they would, they would celebrate that beginning seven days. And every day, get this, every day, someone would travel down to a pool outside of the temple where water would be rushing from a creek or a, a tributary from the mountains and bring water into Jerusalem, into this pool, the pool of Siloam. And the priest would take a cup and he would take a cup every day from that pool and he would take it back into the temple and he would pour it on the altar because it was living water. Jesus said, I am the living water. They would, they would uh, at night light these huge torches in the, in the temple. These torches would, would be so tall and so brilliant with, with illumination. It would not only illuminate the temple area, it would illuminate the city. And it could be seen for miles. And Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. The visual impact of that would be overwhelming. And so as we delve in these next chapters, this feast, this, past, this, this feast of tabernacles becomes hugely important in understanding what's happening in this text. Not only is it important that you and I understand that feast of tabernacles, the, the other thing is that the feast itself, and here's where the problem is for our text this morning. The feast was a feast of redemption and salvation. And so that feast was remembered Particularly that God would bring salvation to his people. And it's at that moment that the brothers of Jesus come to him and say, Hey, we have an expectation. We want you, if you say you're the Savior, to show yourself. Prove to us right now you're the Savior. You ever done that to Jesus? God, if you're really real, show me. You ever done that? Jesus, if you really are there, give me a sign. Have you ever done that? I have. Many times. And the most amazing thing is we do that because we're looking for assurance. Some of you this morning need assurance that Christ has loved you and gave himself for you and that you are cleansed because of your faith in him. Some of you are going through difficult times where you're needing assurance that God, even through the tough times, is with you. You're looking for that assurance. And so you're asking yourself, can I really trust God? Can he really help me in matters like this? And the other alternative is trying to fix it yourself. I don't know about you, but when something's broken, I never can exactly find anyone to fix it the way it, sh it was before it was broken. Have you? 
I've had something drop before. It, it, it was in pieces of plastic. It must have been about 100 different pieces. And, and I went to Lowe's and I found this Gorilla Glue. Have you seen that stuff? It is amazing. It can make your, st your fingers stick together so you can't get them apart. It's really good stuff. But every time I've, I've taken that Gorilla Glue and tried to put together uh, something that's broken, that's plastic, I'll get it all spread so evenly, put it all together, and then wait. And sure enough, it's fixed, but it never looks like it did before it was broken. Have you noticed? God has said, that the brokenness of this world is going to be fixed, not mended, not repaired. It's going to be transformed and renewed through Jesus Christ. And the Feast of Passover, or I should say the Feast of Tabernacle, was that celebration that God, as we celebrate, also we anticipate that God will make the world right again by sending a savior and the brothers of Jesus look at him and say well you going to do it why don't you go to Jerusalem and show them who you really are John tells us they didn't believe in him either you ever had someone in your family discourage you? You ever had that? Then you know what Jesus is feeling. The most amazing thing is Jesus responds this way. He says, my time is not yet. What does he mean by that? I mean, it does make sense, doesn't it? If this is it, this is the time, then Jesus, go ahead and do what you said you're going to do. He says, no, no. He says, it's, it's not for me to do that. Why? Notice how he says, and this really should bother you. It should bother all of us in the way he responds to this. He says to them very pointedly, he says, you can go to the festival because no one will harass you. But if I go, they want to kill me. Why would they do that? Well, look at verse 7. The world cannot hate you. Why would... He say that to his brothers who didn't believe in him because they didn't believe in him. They lived according to the world's way of life. They followed the worldliness of things. They believed they could solve their own problems, take care of their own mess, that they could get enough gorilla glue to take care of their own issues. And Jesus said, the world will never hate you because you do exactly what the world expects. Notice what he says. He says, it hates me because I testify that what it does is evil. This is why no one can be saved without Christ. Because many people believe they can be right with God by doing good things. I do enough good, it offsets the bad. When I get before heaven and I talk to God, I'll say, well, God, I, I attended worship services at Center Church. 
I, I gave money. God, I, I, I put up with some really hard people to love. God, I, I tried to live a good life. I'll never forget my mother being in a Christian science cult one night when she was in a bed of cancer at a hospital. Had been raised in the faith, had veered from it for a number of years and slowly came back to faith in Christ. And the most amazing thing happened that night. I went to see her. I couldn't sleep. It was 3 o'clock in the morning. I walked into the hospital bedroom and she had this look of complete worry. And I said, Mom, what is it? What's the matter? She kind of fumbled around and she said, I've lived a good life, haven't I? I've done a number of good things, haven't I? And I said, yeah, Mom, you've done a great number of good things. Why are you worried? She said, well, you know, I just want to make sure. And I said, that's not it. Mom, that's not it. And it was like God pierced the darkness with the Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit came in that room and reminded her without a word from my mouth, reminded her of the gospel. And she suddenly transformed in her appearance and she said that's right it's him it's the one who loved and gave himself for me and the anxiety left her body the peace of her heart was could be read off her face You see, the world believes, and if you're of the world, you believe yourself. That you're going to be accepted by God by the good things you've done. And that's not the way of salvation. Paul says a righteousness has been revealed that is not according to keeping laws. It is based upon a faith in Jesus Christ. You look at that up in Romans. Well, what does it mean then to believe? Well, this is what John is trying to teach us this morning. This whole series is that you may believe. May believe what? That you may believe that you can be forgiven if you will repent of your sins and ask Christ not only to forgive you, but you believe he is the one God has sent into the world to save the world. And that through him, you can be restored to a right relationship with God the Father. Not because of your good works, but because His work of the cross on your behalf. It's amazing, isn't it? You see, the people who were trying to kill Jesus were trying to kill Him because that message was not the message they wanted to believe or hear. They wanted to kill him because they believed by doing enough good in keeping the law of God, they were righteous, better than other people, more pure, more holy. And so when Jesus says, you go to the festival, you enjoy the festival, the world can't hate you, but it will hate me. Why? Because at the festival, the very festival they participated in, pointed to him as the savior of the world. And they didn't want him. Now there's the question, do you? Do you want to have a relationship with Christ? 
or more pointedly, do you want to have a relationship with God through Christ? There are only two ways to do it. One doesn't work. By obeying laws and thinking somehow you've done enough good to be right with God or admitting your sins, confessing them before God the Father, asking forgiveness, turning from them, and in this moment choosing to follow Christ and love Him. That's it. God says that if you will receive the Son, He will come into you, change your heart, and begin to transform you. You will be continually challenged in your daily walk to make the choice, do I love God or love myself? And from that point forward, you have been set free from the dominion of sin where you couldn't make that choice to now the daily choice of God help me to love you. When Ryan and Emily were standing before us getting married, I told Ryan and Emily, I said, Ryan, Emily, you're getting ready to make vows you can't keep. You're getting ready to make promises you'll never be able to successfully hold. I said, why are you doing this? We are doing this in this place because while you make these vows and these promises, we know that we will never be able to be faithful spouses to our, to our married loved ones. Unless Jesus be Lord, my Lord, that he lead me and correct me and reprove me and show me where my sin is and turn me from it. God, I will never be the husband I need to be without you. The same is true for us as Christians. We will never be the believers that God wants to produce if Christ not be in us. Here's the amazing thing. When the anticipation was that Jesus would come and reveal himself and everybody would go, oh, praise God, the Savior's come. Jesus said, no, I'm not coming. Why? My time is not yet. What is he doing that? Because the Feast of Tabernacles pointed to the fact that there would have to be a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the world. And that was yet to happen in the cross. You hear it? So when Jesus says, my time has not yet come, he's not ducking, he's not dodging, he's not trying to get out of something. He's trying to do the will of God and fulfilling what God has laid out as the plan of salvation. And when the brothers stick their nose in and try to say, well, you ought to do this and you ought to do that, they were being worldly. Jesus was in touch with the Father in such ways that he fulfilled God's plan of salvation by resisting being public until that day when he would be crucified for us. And he would fulfill all things. That's what the Bible says. Isn't that glorious? And so this morning as you leave here, the question you have is, can I really trust in Christ? Let me tell you, John has gone to great extent in chapter 7 to show you everywhere that God commanded in the Old Testament that even the festivals that they enjoyed pointed to the Savior John has been trying to point you to Christ this morning and saying, don't you understand? He is your only hope. He is the only savior of the world. Come to him. Trust in him. Invite him into your life. 
Ask him to forgive you, to give you a new heart, and begin to follow him today. And you will have life in abundance. Have you done that yet? Would you like to? Would you pray with me? Our gracious God and our Father, as we take this time before you, in the uncertainties of our day, we cast ourselves upon the one who has declared that we may have hope in him. And so if there's anyone here who has never opened their lives to Christ, you know Christ invites you. He is here in this place. He has been raised from the dead and he lives forever. He has done what you could not do for yourself. And if you will simply reach out to him by faith. If you will be assured of what you hope to hear from him. If you are convicted that he is the son of God. If you will simply pray that prayer. God, I don't want to be the person I was when I came here. I want to be made new. Please. I see now the truth. I see it. That you are really the only hope of my life, the only hope of the world. Forgive me and cleanse me and come into me. And show me how to live. The Lord says, I stand at the door and knock. Anyone who opens, I will come into them. And then finally, by faith, take hold of what he offers. Thank him. That's the only thing we can do is to thank him and to say, Lord, teach me how now to love you more than anything else. And for the rest, O oh God, who have made that conviction that they have received you. Pour into their hearts what Paul teaches us in the book of Ephesians. That he prayed that the eyes of the Ephesians heart would be enlightened to know the height and the depth of the love of God. To be filled with all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that from this day forward, we would not trust in anything but that word which Christ has spoken. And in trusting in that word, you will show us that you are the one true God. And for that reason, we pray all of this in the name and in the glorious praise of the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And the people of God said together, Amen. Amen.